0: Well, let me start with a question. How many of you here are believers in Jesus Christ and you're not afraid to raise your hand and acknowledge it? You are a bunch of fools. And so is the God you serve. I'm kind of waiting here to see if any of my fellow elders are going to rush the stage and haul me off for heresy. But I think they understand I'm just making a point. Um, See, that's the way Governor Festus reacted to Paul as Paul was in the middle of his defense before King Agrippa. He said, you are beside yourself. You're a fool. You're insane. Much learning is driving you mad. He literally interrupted Paul during his message and said that. That word mad there, the last word there in red that you see, is one word in Greek. It's a noun. It's called mania, or we would say in English mania. And uh, the verb beside yourself, or are beside yourself. That verb is the verb form of that minime, and it. Uh, but this this noun mania is the only time it's used right here, in this verse, in the whole New Testament. And it means madness, delirium, insanity. And Festus said, "Paul, much learning is driving you insane." And Paul says, "Of course. Well, wait a minute. No, no, no. I'm not mad at all." most noble Festus. I speak words of truth and reason. Um, So in the world's perspective, truth and reason often seem foolish. From a biblical perspective, you know, truth and reason are truth. Uh, This is, Paul is not the first person to be called mad by any means in Scripture. In fact, our Lord was called mad. If you remember in John chapter 10, Many of them said he has a demon and is mad. Again, that's minami, that that verb form of mania. And when Peter was set free from prison, you remember this story. Peter was in prison. The church gathered in the home to pray for him. Lord, please help Peter get set free from prison. God set him free from prison miraculously. Peter shows up at this prayer meeting, knocks on the door. Rhoda, a girl named Rhoda, answers. She's so stunned to see Jesus to see Peter standing there that she runs back into the living room where they're praying and she says Peter's here and they go don't bother us we're praying for Peter to be delivered from prison and 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 she's like that's what I just said and they go you are beside yourself you're mad they thought she was mad by the way there's a whole nother sermon that we could preach there about you know sometimes God actually does answer our prayers and uh, and we don't need to think that we're crazy for thinking that he does that Uh, but anyway if we go back to our text so Paul says I'm not mad, crazy, demented, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. In other words, he's not out of his mind. From the world's perspective, he was talking nonsense. But from... uh, The word's perspective, from the world's perspective, it's nonsense, but from the word's perspective, it's truth. Capital W, word. Listen to what Paul wrote three years earlier when he was on his third missionary journey. He's writing a letter, the first letter, at least the first one in the Bible, to Corinth. Paul said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He goes on to say, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Because the foolishness of God, Paul says, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 26 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. We're getting close to... The end, Paul here has been in uh, Caesarea for two years. He finds himself here on August 1st, 59 A.D., uh, giving a defense before Agrippa. Now, he first returned to Jerusalem, May 25th, 57 A.D., more than two years earlier. And he in that time since then, he appeared before the Roman guard, the Roman commander Claudius Lysias, He appeared before Ananias, the high priest. He appeared before Felix, the Roman governor. He appeared before Festus, Felix's successor as Roman governor. And now he finds himself standing before King Agrippa. Last week, I took a look at the Herodian uh, family tree here and pointed out that the Herod that Paul was uh, standing before is Herod Agrippa II. And he was the son of Herod Agrippa I, Uh, and uh, he was the grandson of Herod Antipas and the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And I spent some time last week, I won't go back over, talking about how evil each of these people were, how they were engaged in some wicked things, they were involved in incest, there was some really terrible stuff going on. But this is the Herod that Paul found himself in front of. And so Agrippa says to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Uh, This is the longest and most passionate appeal of all of Paul's defenses that Luke records in the book of Acts. And in this defense, he proclaims the gospel loudly and clearly. To stretch out your hand is to assume the pose of an orator. It was a cultural thing in that day. And this was just the moment that Paul had been waiting for. For two years in prison, he'd been waiting to get the chance before a knowledgeable judge. As wicked as Herod was, he still was, you know, the representative Jewish king, if you will. He understood Jewish culture, and uh, he also was very tight with the Romans, and he had to maintain peace, and he wasn't just uh, like the hostile mob of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish leaders, just trying to kill Paul, like we've been talking about. So he was not inherently antagonistic. But, um, and so Paul had an opportunity here to present his defense and to present the gospel. So he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul begins to with a customary introduction where he compliments the king. Always a good idea, right? Proverbs says, when you go before a king, bring gifts and stuff. You want to compliment him, And then he sincerely urges King Agrippa to listen patiently. He was not promising a short defense. It wasn't going to be a short sermon, which reminds me. <laughs> but anyway, the controversy... Surrounding Paul's ministry and teaching, he's going to go on and explain, was all about the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, specifically salvation through the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about this promise uh, here in, in just a moment, but it included both personal spiritual salvation for all mankind as well as deliverance and blessing for God's chosen nation, Israel. So Paul begins, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know they knew me from the first, if they're willing to testify. In other words, if they'd admit it, they've known me all along. Uh, That according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And Paul was a Pharisee. In other words, Paul is, is laying the foundation here saying it was because of his Jewish heritage, not in spite of it, that he believed and preached what he did. He hadn't, you know, he hadn't come up with something new that contradicted his Jewish religion. It's just that after meeting Jesus face to face, as Mike alluded to, he now understood what the prophets had been saying all along. And if these blinded Jewish unbelieving leaders would simply go back and revisit what the prophets said, they too could understand that the Jewish hope finds its fulfillment in the gospel. It was ironic that the Jews of all people should be charging Paul with disloyalty. They should have jumped on board. But I want to talk about the foolishness of God as we go through Paul's defense here. And I want to point out five manifestations that we see from Paul's defense here of God's foolishness. And the first one, which we're going to spend the most time on, is a foolish promise. A foolish promise. You know, promises are funny things. We often make hasty promises without thinking them through. Um, You remember uh, the foolish promise by Jephthah back in uh, the book of Judges, Judges chapter 11. Jephthah was one of uh, Israel's judges, and he was a mighty man of valor, the Bible tells us, and he delivered Israel from uh, their enemy, the Ammonites, and he served as Israel's judge for six years. But if you remember the story in Judges chapter 11, when the Ammonites were making war against the Israelites, Jephthah made a, a vow to God, and he said, If you'll deliver the Ammonites into my power, then whoever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I get back from battle, I will offer that person as an offering to be burned with fire. Well, when he comes home, guess who comes out the door? His daughter with, you know, tambourines and choral dances. And that was his only child, by the way. But we often make hasty vows without thinking about them. And especially these days, you know, Uh, weddings have become quite the cultural thing. Back in the day when I was younger, you know, weddings were a religious thing, a biblical thing. It was a union before God and these witnesses and that thing. Now they're all uh, quite a bit different. But uh, I I found some pretty humorous vows that starry-eyed young millennial brides and grooms will make with each other as they stand at the altar. And I'm pretty sure they're not able to keep these vows very long. For example, one bride said at the altar, I promise to turn on the air conditioning when you're hot, even if I'm totally freezing. Now, that sounds like something a young, (laughs) starry-eyed bride would say. I wonder how long it really lasted. Another bride said, quote, I promise not to watch the next episode without you. (laughs) Yeah. First time he stays late or gets home after she does, she's blown through six episodes before he gets gets in there. Uh, One bride said, I vow to love you even when you're old and still playing Xbox. So uh, And then this groom said to his bride, "I vow to nearly always notice when you've had a haircut, nearly always, right? Another groom said, "I promise to take only Instagram worthy photos of you. Yeah We guys are terrible at taking pictures. Uh, and then this groom said, I vowed not to keep score. Of course, he then whispered under his breath, because I always win anyway. So, you know, who knows? Foolish vows. When it comes to God's promises, though, a promise that may seem foolish from our perspective, from the world's perspective, is not actually foolish at all. It's divine. And you can take it to the bank. You can count on it. We might think no one is foolish enough to make an unconditional promise. Guaranteed, no matter what, no strings attached. It is totally, completely unconditional. And yet, that's exactly what God did. It's called the Abrahamic promise. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He's talking about the promise made to Abraham. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. And for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. So I want to take a moment to talk about this unconditional promise to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. Now, if you were uh, sitting in our teaching that we did uh, over the last couple of years on Bible prophecy, what lies ahead used to be on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock. Uh, We did talk about this. I have a chapter on it in my book, What Lies Ahead, the same name. Uh, But I know we've got a lot of new folks here, and since Paul really rests his whole argument on understanding the Abrahamic promise, I want to take a minute to go through it. So it goes back to Genesis chapter 12. This is the first formal, direct pronouncement of God's promise, and we call it the Abrahamic uh, covenant. And all of Bible prophecy hangs or falls on this Abrahamic promise. He says, now the Lord God had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. This unconditional promise has three aspects, three components that, as we shall see, have not ultimately been fulfilled yet, which means the promise is yet future. The first one of these is land. He says, I will, I will, it's an emphatic statement of God, I will make you a great nation uh, indicating the reference to the seed there. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And then he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we have land, seed, and blessing. Land, Israel will one day have a kingdom, uh, the boundaries of which are clearly spelled out in Scripture, which they've never had to this day. Uh, seed, the seed of Abraham, will ultimately uh, bring blessing to the whole world. And indeed, All families of the entire globe will be blessed because of this promise. So we need to understand a little bit about biblical covenants because a lot of bad theology out there suggests other covenants that are not biblical, they're theological, they're made up, man brings them to the text. But there are five covenants that are clearly outlined using the normal covenant uh, terminology in Scripture. And the first four of them are unconditional. These are the Abrahamic, the land, the Davidic, and the new. Now, the Abrahamic, I just read you in Genesis chapter 12, but as time goes on and God begins to unveil more about his plan of the ages through the written word, we see those three aspects that I just talked about of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. We see those reaffirmed and reiterated through three subsequent unconditional covenants that we call the land, the Davidic, and the new. Uh, and, and then there's a fifth covenant, which is in a class by itself, and that's the Mosaic covenant. It's in a class by itself because it's conditional. Uh, the first four are unconditional. They're I will statements. So the difference between a conditional and an unconditional covenant is a conditional covenant is an if-then. If you do this, I'll do this. It's a blessing and cursing. It's follow these rules. Things will go well. You don't, you're going you're gonna to receive discipline, right? It's an if-then statement. But an unconditional covenant is an I will. There's no if attached. And its fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant. And that's what we see with the Abrahamic covenant. That God is unconditionally, what the world might think is foolish, but from God's perspective, unconditionally making this promise. And again, this is really the foundation for God's entire uh, covenant uh, program. Uh, I'm going to have to relaunch this so you can actually see that. There we go. So uh, the Abrahamic covenant, again, early on in Genesis, you know, after creation, after the fall, after the Genesis 6 incursion, after the flood, after the table of nations, God calls the chil- children of Israel out. And he, he, this is that covenant. And again, we just read it, but he talks about the land, the seed, and the blessing. And then as time goes on, God reaffirms or reiterates these three aspects. For example, in Genesis 15, he reaffirms the land aspect, even giving the boundaries of the land. And as I've talked about previously, uh, if you look at this map, the red represents modern day Israel. The blue outline is the promised boundaries of the land that Israel will inhabit someday. They've never had that. You know, people forget that Syria, Turkey, parts of Egypt, parts of Saudi Arabia, all of that is part of the promised land. And someday when Christ comes back and takes the throne, the boundaries of Israel will expand. The Temple Mount will expand. The temple that will be built from which Christ will reign, as described in Ezekiel 40-48, to will be massive, completely unlike the Antichrist's temple that is still yet to be built, the third temple. Uh, But the point is, God made this unconditional promise. And one of the reasons we believe in a literal return of Christ, uh, not only because the Bible repeatedly teaches it, is because God can't lie. God wasn't kidding when he gave those boundaries. And if we believe God is God and we do, then there's got to be a literal future kingdom for Christ someday, uh, according to the boundaries mentioned there. Then he reiterates the seed aspect of it with King David when he reminds David that your house, your kingdom, and your throne will be forever. Now, that didn't happen with Solomon. I mean, Solomon's been dead and gone for 3,000 years. He's not sitting on a throne in a temple in Jerusalem. But God says someday... There's going to be a seed of Abraham, capital S, that's going to rule forever. And then he reaffirms the spiritual aspect, that all the families on earth will be blessed through this uh, one foundational covenant. And he's talking here to Israel, but he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And we know as we expand the focus there in Jeremiah 31, as well as Ezekiel 36, that the point of Israel coming back to the land in belief is to be a blessing to the entire world. See, that was God's plan all along, by the way, from a human perspective. Of course, God lays out his plan in Scripture. But if you just look at it chronologically, when Israel crossed over the Jordan and went into the Promised Land, their task was to be a light to the Gentile pagan world. They were to testify to the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they were to go in there and not intermingle with these pagan false religions, but to set up and be a testimony to, to Yahweh so that pagan nations would be drawn to them and say, we want what you have. Tell us about your God. But, of course, we know the story. They went in and immediately began intermarrying and intermingling and capitulating to the false religions around them and thus began this lengthy journey in Israel's history where they tried prophets, priests, kings, and judges, and ultimately God in his unconditional promise never forsook them. He never turned his back on them. He certainly could have, and if this was a worldly promise, we would have given up long ago. But God said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So, this really is kind of the foundation, and it's this promise that Paul is appealing to in his speech. But let's just finish uh, the thought here on God's plan of the ages. So, obviously, we know from the New Testament that God temporarily set Israel apart, Christ comes, the fulfillment of of all Old Testament prophecy. Uh, He he sets the law aside because the law was just put in place until Christ came. The law was just a tutor uh, put in place. Now we're under law that's written on our hearts. We're in a new dispensation, the dispensation of the grace uh, grace of God in which Gentiles and Jews are one body, partakers of what? His promise. So we are now joint heirs of this uh, promise, as the whole globe will be someday when Christ returns. And During this present age, this dispensation of the church, uh, blindness in part has happened to Israel. They haven't been permanently set aside, but they've been temporarily set aside. If the world is a stage, right now the church is center stage. Israel has exited, but someday the curtain's going to fall on the church age. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. Israel's going to enter the stage once again, and God's focus, God's spotlight will be on Israel once again. And that's when the kingdom will finally come. Paul goes on to say in that passage there in Romans 11 that someday all Israel, the whole nation, that doesn't mean every individual Jew, we know from what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse that many Jews will be deceived and take the mark of the beast and reject the Messiah yet again like they did the first time. But the nation as a whole, rather than crowning him with thorns, will crown him with a king's crown the second time around. And they will be delivered when the deliverer comes out of Zion. And that's what the Old Testament prophets said again and again. Joel, for example, says, Someday you're going to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, be delivered into the kingdom. Jesus told the first century Jewish leaders that rejected him, You will not see me again until you cry out, Hosanna, or cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118 there, that Messianic psalm. So this promise, as we return back to our text, really is the guarantee of the coming kingdom. And that's why anybody today that's teaching you the kingdom is metaphorical or figurative or spiritual or that he's reigning in our hearts or the church is the kingdom or there's no literal return of Christ, no literal rebuilt temple, no literal throne or boundaries of the kingdom, they are preaching something that is not biblical. That's false doctrine. Um, so this promise, let's get back to our text. Paul's, uh, or No, I'm sorry, I do want to kind of close the loop a little bit here with what's happening in our current day. So Peter reminds us about this promise that the closer we get to the end times, he's talking about the last days, which is the present age, scoffers are going to come, mockers. And what are they going to say? Well, look at this. They're going to say, where is this promise of his coming? You know, you guys are fools. You've been waiting 2,000 years. Haven't you figured out yet he's changed his mind? Or he, he is rejecting Israel because they rejected him and maybe it wasn't an unconditional promise after all? You guys are crazy to keep looking for the return of Christ. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers themselves fell asleep, everything continues just as it was. But he goes on to say, Peter does, well, nevertheless, and it's a fascinating passage. You should go back and read it. We still look for this promise because God made a promise. It may seem foolish to you, but it's not foolish to God. It's unconditional, and he is going to fulfill it someday when righteousness dwells on the earth Uh, in the context of David's prayer for thanksgiving back when the Davidic promise was given about the seed he says now O Lord God you are God and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant second chronicles yet the Lord will not destroy the house of David why because of the covenant that he made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his son's Forever, An anonymous psalmist re- reflecting on God's faithfulness to Israel through all generations, this is a thousand years after David, uh, or a thousand years rather after Abraham, said, uh, this is his holy promise, for he remembered his holy promise. You know, only God can make a holy promise, because holy means one of a kind, set apart. You can count on it. God's promise is not like some starry-eyed promise of, you know, two lovers standing before an altar. This is a serious promise. It's unconditional and it will happen. Jeremiah the prophet says, I will do that good thing that I have promised. You come to the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews refers back to this promise to Abraham and he says, when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely, surely I will do this. See, God's promises are surely promises, not half-hearted Weak maybe promises. And Paul says, I'm just standing here defending what the prophets of old have said because I've met the fulfillment of this promise face to face. In the first letter that Paul ever wrote, uh, he writes, and this was just some 13 years or so after he had met the Lord on the road to Damascus. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise. The promise of the Spirit through faith. The Spirit of God didn't come into existence with Christ. Obviously, the Spirit of God is God. God eternally exists in three persons. The Spirit of God is eternal. But what did change is at the in the church age, the Spirit of God takes up permanent residence within uh, believers. And That's how Paul knows he's been recipient of this promise. He goes on to say in that same chapter, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You know, what makes God's promise so foolish from man's perspective is that it's a free gift. No matter what we've done or will do, that promise is guaranteed. Paul, referring back to this promise, says, In Him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Have you ever stopped to think about the connection between the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit who encourages us, assures us, uh, convicts us, reproves us, teaches us, comforts us, between the connection between that Holy Spirit who's within us and the promise to Abraham? It's all part of God's plan. Paul told Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In fact, this promise of God, in the mind of God, predates the moment when he gave it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's a foolish promise from the world's perspective. Peter tells us God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And chief among them is the promise of eternal life. This is the promise that he promised us, even eternal life. So the manifestation of God's foolishness is seen in, in the foolish promise from the world's perspective. But from God's perspective, you can take it to the bank. Not a local bank and not Bank of America or J.P. Morgan, but you can take it to a, a bank. Take it, let, me, let me rephrase that. Take it to your safe and lock it in your, in your bedroom. That's, that's the best metaphor I can think of. But secondly, the foolishness of God is seen in a foolish miracle. So, there, you know, from the world's perspective, there's no way Jesus could come back to life. No way. And Paul says, I don't understand why this is so troubling to you. He says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? I mean, cannot an all-powerful God raise the dead? And this is foundational. The whole of the Christian faith rises or falls on whether Jesus... This man who was brutally beaten, tortured, hung on a cross, dead as can be, laid in a tomb, and then rose from the dead three days later and was seen by thousands. I mean, that's the reason skeptics have to come up with all kinds of answers and excuses to what really happened. Oh, he didn't really die. He just fainted. Yeah, he fainted after losing blood and soared up his side crown of thorns you know hanging on a cross no one survives a Roman crucifixion because there's no question that Jesus is alive too many eyewitnesses and, and Paul says I've seen him and he's going to recount that that encounter here in a, in a, in a moment but if you go back to first Corinthians again which Paul wrote again just three years before this moment when he's standing before Agrippa he says if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. We do not place our faith in a dead God. That's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on the face of the earth. Every other religion seeks to solve man's sin problem by having you trust in a rock, a statue, a dead guy, a grave, some ethereal, mystical presence or force, but God calls us to believe in a risen Savior, the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave, which then gives him the power and the authority as the author of life. And By the way, Christ is twice the author of life, right? Colossians and Hebrews tell us he's the one that created life. I mean, God created life, but God eternally exists in three persons, so it shouldn't trouble us that the New Testament would come along and say, Jesus is the creator But then he also purchased life with his own blood and created life when he rose from the dead. And only the author of life can give life. And Jesus Christ gives life to all who believe in him. Paul goes on to say in the same chapter, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact he didn't raise. In other words, if, if Christ isn't risen, then we're all a bunch of liars. We're false witnesses. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. And we're still in our sins. See, we cannot overcome our sin based on our own works. We need someone to give us as a free gift the righteousness that covers our sins. That's what the Bible calls imputation. And Christ did that. So Paul makes a big deal, as he has frequently, and we've seen this in his other defenses, but especially here about the resurrection of Christ. A foolish miracle from the world's perspective, but part of God's plan nevertheless. Thirdly, we see the foolishness of God in a foolish encounter. So as Paul, I want you to picture this. Here's Paul. He's recounting the moment that he met and believed in Jesus. And it strikes me that this encounter does not at all play out as we might expect. It certainly doesn't play out the way I would write it if I was a Hollywood script writer. I mean, think about it. Here's Paul. He's been murdering, torturing Christians, dragging them from their homes, hunting them down. He was standing there consenting at Stephen's death, the first martyr in Acts chapter uh, 7. I mean, he was the enemy of Christ. And then, you know, you can almost hear the music in the background, right? You know, rising for this tense moment on the big screen. And all of a sudden, Paul's walking down the road to Damascus, and Jesus confronts him. From the world's perspective, what happens next? I can tell you what would happen. If I were the one writing the script, if I were to confront Paul unexpectedly, catch him off guard on the road to Damascus, I would have struck him dead Right then and there. I'll show you. You're going to get what's coming to you. You enemy of Christianity. But no, this is a foolish encounter. This is a God encounter. This is not the way the world would write it. Thankfully, the world doesn't operate based on, uh, the Lord doesn't operate based on worldly principles and wisdom. So in God's foolishness, what does he do? He chooses to forgive and save Paul from his sins. If we continue with Paul's defense here. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This is one of the reasons that we think that Paul was most likely a member of the Sanhedrin. We know he was a Pharisee, but uh, the idea here of casting his votes or in uh, Acts, actually, it was Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was killed, but then in the beginning of chapter 8, I think it might even be the first verse, Luke tells us Paul was, or Saul at the time, was consenting at Stephen's death. They laid their coats at his feet. They took their coats off to pick up stones, throw them at Stephen, and where did they lay them? Right at Saul's feet. And you can almost just see this hateful, unbelieving Saul smirking as as Stephen dies a merciless death. Uh, but uh, we don't know for sure whether he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but either way, he certainly, he, he's saying, look, I was, a zealous, I was a zealous Jew, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. He tried to force Christians to blaspheme by getting them to say that Jesus was not the Christ and getting them to curse him. He was so zealous that he even pursued Christians to foreign cities, being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even then, even to foreign cities. Now, this, just as a side note, is, is interesting because it brings up the subject of denying Christ. And unfortunately, and I talked about this yesterday in a, in a podcast that I did uh, Saturday, but unfortunately, a lot of people have the mistaken notion that denying Christ means you go to hell. And that's simply not true. It's not true explicitly in the biblical epistles, and it's not true by experience. The sad reality is that throughout 2,000 years of church history, many Christians have found themselves in a position where, though they shouldn't, they denounce their faith. And many Christians in Paul's day were doing that. Uh, But thankfully, our eternal destiny isn't contingent upon us continuing to hang on to God or be faithful to Him until the end or persevere to Him until the end. Our eternal salvation is given to us the moment we believe. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel, not when you die. We don't have to wait till we die to see if we were good enough or persevered enough to get to heaven. And who among us can say with certainty that if someone put a gun to our head and said denounce the faith or deny the Lord, what would we say? Now I can tell you I'm pretty confident what I would say and I feel you probably are pretty confident what you would say. But let's turn the notch up a little bit. What if someone puts a gun to your wife's head? Or your daughter's head, or your grandson's head. What if they line them all up, sit you in a chair in front of them, strapped with duct tape, and they have guns pointed at all of them? They say, "I want you to deny Jesus right now, publicly." Aren't you glad that your eternal destiny is not based upon something that you might or might not do in a moment of weakness? That's what grace is all about. It's a free gift. Salvation is not a partnership where we promise to do something for God, promise to hang on, promise to be faithful, promise to never denounce the faith. What if Peter had got struck by lightning before the cock crowed, after his second denial, but before his third? Remember, Peter denied Christ three times and cursed him. See, Christians sadly do bad things sometimes. Our goal as believers is to walk faithfully before the Lord, to unashamedly uh, proclaim our allegiance to him as Christians. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews was about, by the way. During Nero's reign, it comes after this, just a few years after, uh, 67 to 69 AD, Nero goes berserk, starts burning Christians at the stake, and many Christians were abandoning the faith. Jewish Christians in particular were saying, You know, I don't know. I can't watch my family die a cruel death. I'm going to stop assembling together. Hebrews 10.25. I'm going to depart from the Christian church and I'm going to go back over here to the safe haven of Judaism. And uh, then I won't be killed. Do those people go to hell because they made that decision? Not the right decision. Not a good decision. They forfeited some blessings. They missed out on some rewards because of that. And and the writer of Hebrews makes an excellent analogy between the children of Israel, including Moses, by the way. Who essentially turned their back on the Lord, showed unbelief, and consequently didn't get the blessing of entering the promised land. A lot of bad teachers out there suggest the promised land is a metaphor for heaven. Absolutely not. Otherwise, we've got Moses in hell today. No, Moses didn't get into the promised land. He's in heaven, but he didn't get that reward. And so the writer of Hebrews is challenging those first century persecuted Jewish Christians Hang on to the faith. Don't cast away your confidence carelessly. I know it's tough. You may have to pay the ultimate price, but God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. And so I just wanted to make that point because we might think that these Christians whom Saul was dragging from their homes and demanding that they blaspheme or you know, uh, denounce their faith, you know, somehow are in hell, not not at all. But only one thing matters when it comes to heaven or hell. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone Amen. as the only one who can save you? If you do that, at that precise moment, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So now Paul gets into the exciting part, this, this foolish encounter, foolish from the world's perspective anyway. O King, uh, at midday along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, that's new information, by the way. None of the other accounts of Paul's conversion talk about how everyone fell to the ground. And that's pretty important because it shows that the event was real and not just some vision or made-up thing in Paul's mind that only he saw. Everybody saw it, and they all fell down. And I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, remember the Hebrew language, as Luke refers to here in his recounting of Paul's testimony, is Aramaic. And I think The Lord spoke to Paul in Aramaic, the Hebrew language, just to show Paul, this is the Lord. This is legit. Uh, And and what does the Lord say to him? Saul, Saul, remember in Hebrew culture, when you repeat a person's name twice, it shows great emotion. So here's the one whom Saul was persecuting and killing people that believed in him, addressing directly face to face, Saul. Saul. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were sharp sticks that were used to drive cattle. And it was a, it was a, a farming metaphor that was very common, still very common uh, today. The idea is, you know, it, it's, it's you're, you're kicking against or you're opposing something that is inevitable. It's kind of like hit, banging your head against the wall. It's going to happen no matter uh, what? So just let it go. Uh, and, and when you do that, when you kick against the goad, you're only hurting yourself. Um, and, and, you know, this was the case with Paul's antagonism to Christianity and Christians. So the, the, the picture here is of a young ox who would be put in a yoke, and he's in a single-handed plow, and he, he resents the burden of being in this yoke. He's not trained. And so he tries to kick his way out. And so the plowman would be behind the plow and he would have a long stick with a pointed sharp uh, end and he would hold it down at the heels of that ox. And every time the ox tried to kick and resist the, the, the yoke, that goad would stick into its heel. Well, after a period of time, that ox is going to get the idea. I'm not helping myself. I'm only hurting myself. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to just do it. And the point was that Paul was never going to succeed in his attempts to destroy Christianity. It was time to change sides because God has made a promise that nobody can, you know, contravene. God's promise you can take to the bank, it's done. And not only Paul, but not anything else, not unbelieving Israel, not the enemies of the church, not. 2,000 years of a Luciferian conspiracy within the church age trying to defeat Christianity. Not the global elites today, not Klaus Schwab, not Yuval Noah Harari. Nobody is going to keep God's promise from coming true. It may get bad for a while, but it's not going to stop God from having. The Luciferian elites are kicking against the goats, and so was Paul. So Paul answers, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have prepared you for you for to you. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes, in order to turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This verse is really one of the best summary statements of not only Paul's mission, but of the mission of every believer. We are to do for others what God has done for us. God has opened our eyes. He's poured out His grace upon us. We've received it by faith, by placing our trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. And in that instant, we become born again. We're a child of God. And now we ought to be about the business of helping other people's eyes be open. So God's foolishness is seen in a foolish promise, a foolish miracle, this foolish encounter, and then a foolish salvation, a foolish salvation. Now, when the world hears about God's plan of salvation, they think it's insane. They're like Festus interrupting Paul. You're nuts. You can't possibly get something as valuable as eternal life for free. And yet, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Grace is free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. Have I said free enough? I love saying that because, throughout 35 years of ministry, I can't tell you how often I get puzzled looks and people squirm and fidget. Yeah, no, salvation's not free. You know, you got to bring something to the table. You got to do something. You got to give God something. You got to do something for Him. You got to make a pledge or a promise or a commitment or surrender or knowledge or turn or forsake. Or you got to do something. As if salvation is a two-way street, a, a bilateral contract where you sit down at the bargaining table and God says, i got eternal life. What do you got? Oh, well, I'll repent of all my sins. I'll stop sinning. I'll give my life to you. I'll surrender everything to you. And you just keep adding on until finally God says, okay, that's it. We've got a deal. No, far from it. It's nothing in our hand we bring simply to the cross we cling we have nothing to give god a lot of times people will say telling their testimony they'll say well i was 10 years old when i gave my life to christ and i always want to say oh that's interesting well tell me about when you got saved did you know the bible never not a single time says you get saved by giving something to god never that phrase give your life to god is, is never used of how to get saved There's one giver and one receiver. God's the giver for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and one receiver. To as many as received him, John 1, 12, we become the children of God. It's a one-way offering. And and many people never get saved because they're too busy loading up their arms with things to give God. The way every other religion teaches it. That you've got to do something for God. You've got to give something to him. You've got to bring something to him. Not, Not Christianity. And that's foolish to the world. See, the world thinks there's no way God would give us something as valuable as eternal life for free. But it is. It's absolutely free. Romans 3.24 says we are justified freely by His grace. It's free. And so listen to what Paul says. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. That word repent has gotten really a bad name. Uh, the first century audience, including Agrippa, would have understood exactly what Paul meant. It's the Greek word metanoeo. It's a compound verb meaning to think again, meta, to uh, again, naeo to think or I think. And it just means to think again, to change your mind. It's a mental term. It means to rethink things. And so Paul went around having repented himself. He certainly went from recognizing Jesus as an enemy to his Savior, he had changed his mind, and now he wanted everyone to change their mind. It has nothing to do with whether you stop sinning or not. And sadly, after 2,000 years of Satan blinding men's hearts to the gospel and promoting confusing, false, complex gospels that the Bible knows nothing about, is trying to convince people they got to stop sinning to get saved. And they'll use the phrase repent of sins, uh, which there's not a single verse in the Bible that says if you repent of sins, you go to heaven, or even repent of sin, you go to heaven. Believers are called to change their mind about sin, and so are unbelievers. We've got to, It's a mind change. We've got to recognize that we are a sinner, that our actions are an offense to a holy God, and that that sin consigns us to a literal place of torment called hell. And only by faith in Christ can we be forgiven of our sin. That's the change of mind. I used to think I could save myself. I used to think I was good enough and didn't need a Savior. I used to think that these sins were not an offense, or there was nothing wrong with what I was doing. I used to think I wasn't a sinner. Whatever you used to think, you need to change your mind and recognize that you're a sinner and needs a Savior, like everyone born, Ephesians 2.1. And so that was Paul's message. Uh, he goes on, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, therefore having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing to both small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. So he kind of comes full circle here back to this promise. He's saying, look, I'm just simply recognizing when, when I understood what was going on and really met the Lord, that this is all part of God's plan, and this is the Christ. What did the prophets say? That the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And, and here, in all its essence, is the gospel that Paul preached and that believers should always pro- proclaim. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ Died for our sins according to the scriptures was buried and rose again according to the scriptures so we see a foolish promise a foolish miracle a foolish encounter and a foolish salvation and finally The end of this encounter as Luke records. It is really fascinating You're familiar with it. I'm sure at least one phrase of it and that is we see a foolish invitation a foolish invitation so Paul then says King Agrippa do you believe he says do you believe the prophets Uh, and then he says look I'm sure you do because you're the king of the Jews certainly you know the Old Testament prophets but what he's really saying is don't you believe what they said and don't you believe that this Jesus is the fulfillment of that that he is the Messiah that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Isaiah the prophet talked about that in Isaiah 53 And of course, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. This is the invitation. It's a foolish invitation because, you know, what enemy is going to offer the most valuable gift, man's greatest need, eternal life, totally for free to his enemies? Who would do that? You know, as I said, we we want to strangle them, right? That's not grace. Grace is undeserved merit, undeserved love, an undeserved gift. The minute you add requirements to it, it's no longer grace, it's a work. Romans 4 says that. Whatever is of grace is not of grace. Whatever is is grace is not of works. Whatever is of works is not of grace. Romans 11 also says the same thing. So we see this invitation throughout Scripture. Jesus said during His earthly ministry, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, ends with just the final four or five verses here, says the spirit of the bride say, come let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come three times. He repeats that invitation. What is it? Whoever desires, let him take the water of life. What freely. It's a free gift. Now it's very costly gift. See gifts can be expensive and free, right? They're expensive for the one purchasing the gift but they're free to the one receiving the gift. The gift of eternal life costs God his only son, and it costs Jesus his own shed blood and his death on the cross. But it costs us absolutely nothing. If we could somehow earn our right position before a holy God, Jesus didn't have to die. If we could offer enough, be enough, do enough, Jesus didn't have to die. But it's precisely because we are hopeless, helpless sinners that Jesus paid it all. He paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Jesus himself said, most surely I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Not might, not possibly, might could, might eventually, not, not might eventually, but at that moment, when faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life every time. In fact, he says, you shall not come into judgment, but you have passed in that instant from death to life. He told Nicodemus, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. That's how you receive the gift. You know, in a physical realm, you receive a gift by, you know, handing it from one person uh, to another. So if I can use Michael here who's diligently taking notes. So this is a gift bag that we give guests. And if I were to hand this gift to Michael, the minute he takes it with his hands, the transaction's complete. I'm giving a gift, he's taking a gift. But in a spiritual sense, uh, you know, we're talking about the immaterial realm, sorry, we're talking about the immaterial realm, we don't have hands and feet. The offer is an offer of the salvation of our lives eternally. We get eternal life, we become born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. How do we receive it? Well, our spiritual hands are faith. Faith is the instrumental means of receiving that gift. Don't listen to false teachers out there who suggest that God gives you the gift of faith. That's a bad grammatical and and, and syntactical understanding of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The gift is eternal life. The Bible says that again and again. And it's a category confusion. How can you receive a gift with a gift? So I've got a gift for you. I'd like you to receive it. Great. Give me a gift and I'll receive it. No, no. Here's the gift. I've got it. Would you like to take it? Yeah, I'd love to have it. Give me a gift and I'll take it. I'm trying to give you a gift. It's just completely nonsense and confusing. So we have the ability to reject or accept the gift. Otherwise, it's it's a crazy nonsensical offer we're just a bunch of automatons we have a choice we can believe the gospel or we can reject it just like we could sin or not sin god created man in his image with a volition and he created adam and eve with free will and they could choose to eat the apple proverbially uh, or they could not they chose to sin and in the same way god's remedy for our predicament that we got ourselves into which is incredible picture of his grace uh, it must be freely offered and freely received uh, so, back to our text as we wrap up. King Agrippa again said, You almost persuade me to be a Christian. He was on the spot. Paul, a masterful orator under the power of the Spirit, preaching the gospel, defending his mission, you know, he, he puts Agrippa on the spot. If Agrippa agreed with Paul, or even if he appeared to agree, then he would have lost face with Festus and the other Romans in the audience. Uh, Because remember, Festus had just interrupted earlier and said that Paul is nuts. He's crazy. He's insane. So Agrippa certainly doesn't want to align himself with that. But at the same time, if he said he didn't believe the prophets, which is the reason Paul worded it that way, all of a sudden now he's going to raise the ire of all the Jews in the audience. What do you mean? You're supposed to be the king of the Jews and you don't believe the prophets? Excellent argument that Paul makes. So consequently, Agrippa basically replies non-committally the greek there implies i need to think about it is the idea and so paul said and this is a powerful statement i would to god that not only you but everyone here today might become both almost and altogether such as i am in other words i wish that everybody would become completely a christian by faith and he says except for these chains I i don't wish this on anybody And when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of change. And then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And this is a climactic end to this section of Luke. The next section, the final two chapters of the book of Acts, of Acts. I mean not Luke, Luke wrote Acts, I always conflate them, but this is a climactic ending to this section of Acts. And Luke is going to end in chapters 27 and 28 with Paul's journey to Rome. And remember, that's had been Paul's heartbeat for years. He wanted to go to Rome and preach the gospel among the Gentiles there. And he's, he's going to head, head that way. But uh, because he had, a, this is all part of God's plan, because he had appealed to Caesar, he's going to, to get that opportunity. So the foolishness of God, we see it in the foolish promise the foolish miracle, the foolish encounter, the foolish salvation, and the foolish invitation from the world's perspective. But my takeaway, what I want you to think about, is kind of what I tongue-in-cheek said at the outset of our message. Are you a fool for Christ? If you're going to be a fool, and there's no shortage of fools in this world today, make sure you're a fool for Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this... uh, word today. Lord, I know we covered a lot of ground here in Acts, but it's a fascinating story, and it's a story that touches all the key points of the biblical narrative, the grand meta-narrative of human history, a narrative of grace, sin, judgment, uh, forgiveness, and, uh, and, and salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's one within the sound of my voice that has not placed his or her faith in the only one that can save them, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. They would see what a hopeless cause it is to be trying to earn salvation and instead to simply believe in the one who took their place on the cross. And those for those believers here today, Lord, I pray that you would embolden us, strengthen us, help us to follow Paul's example, help us to understand that you are a covenant-keeping God, your promises are real, and Lord, we praise you and thank you for that, that we can count on you. And we look forward with great expectancy uh, to the soon return of your Son and our Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.